So today we begin our new preaching series, which I've entitled Undomesticated. In this series, we are going to be looking at the undomesticated attributes of God. What does that mean? Well, an attribute refers to the quality or the characteristic that belongs to a person. So God's attributes define and describe who he is. So we are going to be talking about who God is. We're going to be looking at attributes of God like his impassibility and his incomprehensibility and his aseity and his simplicity, to name a few. We want to spend the first part of the year looking at who God is. And I refer to God's attributes who he is as undomesticated because God cannot be domesticated. He cannot be brought down to our level. Now, we try to do that, though, don't we? We want to bring God down to our level. We want to bring him down to our understanding, our way of thinking. But he can't be brought down to our level, and he won't be. When we think of God... We must start with God and not us. And that is always a dangerous temptation, is it? To begin with us and then try to move up to God. To move from our experience of who God is. If we do that, then we flirt with the possibility of creating God in our own image. If we start with us, if we start with our experience then we will shape God into who we want him to be. Listen, God is God. He is who he is. And just like you can't look to how housewives were supposed to be like in the 1950s and 60s where they were cooking and cleaning all day while wearing high heels and pearls, right? Like the mom off Leave it to Beaver, right? You can't look at that time period and say, that's how all the young moms should be now. Young moms, you don't have to look like that, okay? You can if you want to. We heard a praise God back there. You can, how do they clean in high heels? You don't have to clean in high heels, wear pearls, have a drink in the newspaper waiting for your husband when he comes home. If they did that back then, great. You don't have to... Do that. You can't look at that time and say, that's how all moms should be today. So too, you can't look at your own understanding of who you want God to be. You can't say, this is how God should be. Instead, you have to look to his word and hear what it says about God. So in this series, we want to see what God says about himself. And we want to go to those places in our thinking that may make our brains hurt. Where we have to think long and hard about who God is, even if it gives us a migraine. We want to go deep in our understanding. We want to think long and hard about who God is. In the foreword of Matthew Barrett's book, None Greater, which I'm leaning on heavily in this series, Fred Sanders says this, Focusing on a pre-selected subset of things... We like to remember about God, his mercy, intimacy, concern for us, 
attention to us, love for us, we let our thoughts about God orbit around that familiar center. We, go crump, we grow comfortable with a certain set of reassuring, familiar, and cozy divine attributes. There are no sheer cliffs, dizzying heights, or fathomless abysses in the doctrine of God we let ourselves settle into. It's as if we have a doctrine of God that gets everything right, except that it accidentally leaves out the sheer godness of God. But that means it gets everything wrong. In this series, we want to not only be reminded of those very familiar, reassuring, cozy attributes of God, like his mercy and like his kindness and love for us, but we also want to stand on the edge of the sheer cliffs of who God is. We want to go up to the dizzying heights of God, way up in the nosebleed section, And we also want to dive deep down into the fathomless abysses of the doctrine of God. We want to let our thoughts about God orbit around all that God is. So here's our big idea today, and it gets at the heart of why we're doing this series on the undomesticated attributes of God. And it's this, the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension in your life. I learned that in seminary from my church history prof, Dr. Jeff Bingham. Bless Jeff Bingham. He would repeat it over and over and drill it into our heads. So I am indebted to him. He has shaped my thinking about this. And maybe you even heard A.W. Tozer say something very similar. He said, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given moment may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like, and goes on from there. Before a church goes into eclipse, it gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? That's why we're doing this series, this series, because we want to know who God is, and we want to know what he is like. We want to get a, a right answer to the question, what is God like? So we're going to lay a foundation for this new sermon series today before we actually dive into God's attributes next week. And to lay that foundation today, we need to look at the difference between revelation and theology. We need to look at the difference between, not the book of Revelation, but the Bible, revelation and theology or doctrine. Okay, Revelation is what God says. Now, God has many thoughts, and his thoughts and ideas are above us, as the prophet Isaiah tells us. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. By the way, this is a topical series that we're doing, so we're not going to be working through one book like we did with 2 Corinthians. We're going to be jumping all over the place 
every week. But turn to Isaiah chapter 55. We will be humbled today by the fact that God's ways and God's thoughts are far above us. We will be humbled by that truth today. So Isaiah chapter 55, look at verse 8 and hear the word of the Lord. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's humbling. (laughs) Those verses will put you in your place. God's way of doing things and God's thoughts are above and beyond us. His thoughts are far beyond us because he is infinite. He is other. And that's really what the word holy means. The word holy means that God is other. He is different from us. He is set apart from us. He is in another category altogether. He is not just a bigger version of us. He is completely different from us. That's why his ways are not our ways. And that's why his thoughts are above us and beyond us. But here's the good news. God has spoken some of his thoughts to us. Thank God. He has spoken to us. He hasn't kept all of his thoughts to himself. He has revealed some of his thoughts to us. Let me ask you, when's the last time you were awestruck and grateful that God has spoken to us? In his word. When's the last time you were awestruck that you have access to some of God's thoughts and some of God's ways? He didn't have to reveal himself to us, but he did. And every single one of us here has God's thoughts, some of God's thoughts, and some of God's ways on an electronic device called an iPhone that we carry around in our purses or in our back pockets. Think about that. You have some of God's word. You have some of God's thoughts, some of God's ways in your back pocket, on your phone. And you can access them anytime you want. Wow. So revelation is what God shares with us, what God says to us put into human language. But there's also what theologians call general revelation. That means that God has revealed himself through creation. You can look at a tree, you can look at a duck, you can look at the planet Mars and understand there is a creator behind it. But we need more than general revelation. We need what theologians call special revelation. We need God speaking and revealing himself to us through his word. Because if you leave humanity with just general revelation, what happens? Man will worship creation. If you give a man a sunrise at Pismo Beach, what will he do with it? He will worship it, and he will put it on Instagram, and he won't even have to add a filter because God's sunrises are so awesome. If you give a man lush green hills, what does he do with it? He worships it. 
Trees become idols. If you give a man bacon, what does he do with it? He worships it. I was expecting an amen there. And I was going to call someone out as an idolater right here in the middle of the sermon. So without special revelation, general revelation is completely ambiguous. General revelation needs to be complemented by special revelation. Otherwise, we'll just end up making idols. That's how desperately wicked the human art is. And God in his grace has revealed himself to us through special revelation, through his word, and then especially through the incarnation of his son Jesus. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But you have to understand that God has lots and lots and lots of thoughts that he does not share with us. Let me say that again, because you're an American and you're a Californian, and you're like, I do not like that. God has lots and lots and lots of thoughts that he does not share with us. He hasn't revealed everything to us. And those thoughts are just, well, they're God's thoughts. They belong to him. They are his. They are unspoken, they are unheard, and they are never shared with creation. And because he is God, he can do that. He can have thoughts that he does not share with us. But he is good, and he is a giver. So he hasn't been stingy with his thoughts, has he? He has revealed some of his thoughts to us in his word. And so revelation is what God says to us in his written word as recorded in the Bible. John Calvin said this about it. He said, when God talks to us through his word, Calvin said, God uses baby talk. Here's how Calvin said it. For who is so devoid of intellect as not to understand that God, in so speaking, lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children? Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of a being God is as accommodate the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. Here's what Calvin is saying. Calvin says that when God speaks to us, it's like a nurse speaking baby talk to little babies. When God speaks to us in his word, in the Bible, it's as if God is using baby talk with us. As if he's saying, goo goo gaga. Like a mother holding her infant and looking into her baby's eyes and saying sweet gibberish to her precious child, God has to speak baby talk to us precisely because he is so infinite. He is so incomprehensible. He is so holy, so other, so different, so far beyond us. He's so other that he has to stoop down to us. And when he speaks to us in his word, as glorious as it is, it's like a mother speaking baby talk to her three-month-old baby. 
Have you ever thought of reading the Bible that way? When you open up God's word to read it, it's like God, from his perspective, is saying to you, goo goo gaga. That's humbling, isn't it? This book, which has very, very, very deep theological waters that we can wade into, is just baby talk from God's perspective. He has to stoop down to accommodate us. He has to stoop down to our level or we would have no way of knowing him. That's humbling. So God's revelation to us is baby talk. But whereas revelation is what God says, we also want to distinguish that from theology. We want to distinguish revelation from doctrine. I'm using those two terms interchangeably, theology theology and doctrine. Doctrine or theology is what we say about what God has said. Doctrine or theology is our commentary, our opinion, our reflection, our meditation, our thoughts about what God says. It's our commentary, it's our opinion, our reflection, our meditation, our thoughts on God's baby talk. In fact, we're just a bunch of babies trying to comment on God's baby talk to us. Think about that and be humbled. We're just a bunch of little babies trying to make commentary on God's baby talk to us. So he says, goo goo gaga to us in his word. And when we talk about what he says, this is what we say about what he has said. Goo goo gaga. It's good to be humbled by that truth. And so doctrine or theology is a human thing. It's a human action. It's something that we do. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. As Fred Sanders says, theology is hard. Theology is hard because once you realize how much greater God is, that than which nothing greater can be conceived in the Anselmian ways of saying it, then you realize how much harder God is to talk about. I love how Anselm, born in 1033, died in 1109. Here's how he described God. Something than which nothing greater can be conceived. God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. That's why theology, that's why doctrine is hard because in theology we are trying to say things about someone than whom none greater can be conceived or thought of. We are trying to comment on the greatest someone that exists and we're just a bunch of babies trying to make comments on the incomprehensible God that we serve. And that's why theology is hard, and that's why it takes work, which is why many people will not engage in climbing up the sheer cliffs or plumb the fathomless abysses of God, because it can make your brain hurt, can it? And that's why some people are happy to just orbit around the very familiar center of what they know about God. 
And that's why we're doing this series. Because the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension in your life. It matters what you think about God. It will affect every single area of your life. If you think your heavenly father is crabby, and always angry, and always upset with you, and he just kind of throws his hands up in there, and is like, oh, can this kid ever get his act together? If that's how you think of God, it will affect every area of your life. By the way, your heavenly Father is not upset with you. He loves you. He rejoices over you with singing. He loves you with the same love that he loves his own son, Jesus. And he's not mad at you. Let me say that again. Christian, those who are trusting in Christ alone, God is not mad at you. He's not frustrated with you. And if you think he is, it will affect every area of your life. But notice the distinction between what we call revelation and theology or doctrine. Who is the subject acting on the verb to say in Revelation? God is. Revelation is a God thing. He's doing the action in Revelation. He's the one lisping like a nurse is wont to do with little children. He is the one saying goo goo gaga to us. But who is the subject acting on the verb to say in doctrine? Well, we are. Doctrine and theology is a human thing. It's something human beings do. It's our saying something about what God has said. It's our reflection about what God has revealed. So revelation is a God thing. God does revelation and human beings do theology and doctrine. So when a pastor stops reading the Bible and says, this is what this means, he has moved from revelation over to doctrine or theology. When I am preaching, you will hear me say at the beginning of the sermon, hear the word of the Lord, and I read scripture. That's revelation. Then I start saying other things. That's doctrine. That's theology. I move from a divine word to a human word. So notice the distinction. But there's another way to distinguish revelation and theology. Revelation is inerrant. That's what you hear uh, Evangelicals say about God's word, right? You've probably heard the phrase, the inerrancy of scripture. Well, what does that mean? What does inerrant mean? It means that something is true. It means that something is absent from error. Inerrant means not errant. So in, I-N, means not, and errant means error. Anytime you see the prefix I-N, in, or I-M, M, Attached to a word, it usually means that it's negating something. And you see this with a lot of the undomesticated attributes of God. They have a prefix, I-N or I-M, attached at the beginning. For instance, incomprehensible. That means that God cannot be fully and completely comprehended by us. His That God is immutable. It means that God cannot change. Impassable means God does not experience emotional change. Infinitude, God cannot be 
measured. Now, here's what's so weird about all of this. We prefer a negative word for a positive concept. Have you ever thought about that? When you throw around the words like immutable, incomprehensible. We have a negative word, inerrant, that we use to describe the positive aspect of God's word, that it is true. So we have a a negative word, immutable, to describe the positive aspect that God cannot change. Human beings are so weird, aren't we? We find negative words to describe something positive. Okay, but back to the word inerrancy. Revelation is inerrant, without error, which means that it is true. So we're using a negative word to describe the positive aspect about the Bible, that it is true and absent from error. So revelation, when God speaks, has a one-way relationship with truth. God speaks, and it can only be true. But theology and doctrine, on the other hand, has a twofold relationship to truth. Let me ask you, can I speak inerrantly? Can I speak inerrantly? Yes. My name is Benjamin Edward Magnus. Is that true? Yes. Is there any error in that statement? No. I am married to Heather Marie Magnus. True or false? True. I hate mayonnaise and it comes from the devil. True. That's an inerrant statement. Mayonnaise comes from the devil is an inerrant statement. There is no falsehood in that. As a human being... Made in God's image, I have the capacity, you have the capacity to speak inerrantly. We have the capacity to speak truth, but we also have the capacity to speak errantly. I have blue skin. True or false? False. I love to wear white. True or false? False. So I can do either. I can speak something true or inerrant, or I can speak something false and errant. Human beings can produce both what is inerrant and errant. What we say about what God says can be both true and false. What we say about revelation, about what God has said in his word, can be either true or false. What our commentaries say about what God says, what our sermons say about what God says, what our Sunday school lessons say about what God says, what our books say about what God says, what our social media posts say about what God says. All of these things can be either true or false. But revelation, what God says, is always and only inerrant. And so we distinguish revelation from doctrine and theology by number, number one, by who is doing the talking, and number two, what is their relationship to truth? In revelation, God is doing the speaking, and it's always true. But in doctrine, in theology, we are doing the speaking, and it may be true, or it may be false. But we also want to distinguish revelation from theology by time, progress, development, and history. Revelation, God's word, is static. It's not dynamic. 
It's not changing over time. Revelation does not change. There is only one Bible. There is only one Old Testament. There is only one New Testament canon recognized by the church. We do not expect to wake up tomorrow and find out that someone discovered 3 Corinthians so that we would add it to the Bible. We don't accept any additions to Revelation. We don't accept any new books added to the Bible. Why? Because Revelation, what God says, is not in flux. The Bible is not being written. The Bible has been written. The same book of Romans that you and I read is the same book of Romans that Martin Luther read in the 16th century. The same book of Romans that you and I read is the same book of Romans that Augustine and the heretic Pelagius were both reading in the 4th century. Both Augustine and the heretic Pelagius were both reading God's word, both reading the book of Romans, but what they each said about what God had said was either true or false. Augustine spoke the truth, Pelagius spoke what was false about God, and therefore we refer to him as a heretic. The Bible stays the same, but we change. We change our opinions. We change our interpretation of Scripture. We change our view of the end times. We might change our view of baptism and the Lord's Supper, what age a person can be baptized, or the the age of the earth, etc. But Revelation, God's Word, does not change. We're all reading the same text and coming up with different ideas different interpretations. We change our opinions, don't we? How many of you have ever changed your opinion of a particular verse or theology? Anybody? You bunch of liberals changing your opinions all the time. See, our opinions do change, don't they? But this book stays the same. Our interpretation of this book can change, but the book stays the same. So it matters. Doctrine and theology can be like a roller coaster, right? It can be like being at Disneyland and riding the Matterhorn, you know? It's exciting, it's thrilling. You can go up and down here and there all over the place. In theology and doctrine, your hair is blowing all over the place. You get butterflies in your stomach. You scream with joy. That's what doctrine and theology are like. It's thrilling. It's roller coaster kind of joy. But revelation is boring. Because it never changes. It stays the same. You can go to sleep and wake up and revelation, God's word, is the same. It never does anything exciting, does it? It never dances. It never sings. Revelation never gets in a bar fight. Revelation never gets a tattoo. It never does anything worth being reported. It just kind of stays the same. It's kind of boring, if you will. Romans is always Romans, isn't it? Isaiah is always Isaiah. Isaiah never dyes his hair purple, does he? It's just very, very boring. The same thing. The excitement, however, is in doctrine. The excitement, however, is in theology. But it's also where the danger is. It can be dangerous because what we say about what God says can get us in trouble. 
We can say some things about what God says that are not true. It happened in our own denomination, Converge, 20 years ago. Had a seminary professor teaching open theism. What is that? It's the belief that God does not infallibly know the future. Open theism says some of the future is open. We don't know what's going to happen, and God doesn't know what's going to happen. So we're kind of waiting with God, like, what's tomorrow going to bring? Well, that goes against so many scripture. So we had it in our own denomination about 20 years ago. Doctrine and theology can be like riding on a roller coaster. It's thrilling. Good theology is thrilling. Good doctrine is exciting. Reading the Institutes by John Calvin is thrilling. Reading the Westminster Confession of Faith is exciting and awe-inspiring. Reading our own affirmation of faith here at Grace is thrilling. So there's excitement in doctrine and theology. It's why you love to go to the Christian bookstore and buy books. It's why you keep buying books and you still haven't read the books that you bought, right? It's exciting, but it's also where the danger is. It's theology and doctrine that sometimes just can't sit still. It's theology and doctrine that squirms in its seat. And that means that it's extremely dangerous for you and me to be a Protestant. Because sometimes Protestants don't know when to say, Whoa, slow down there, Padna. Easy does it, darling. Sometimes Protestants, with all of our study Bibles, with all of our books, we don't know how to say, theology, go home, you're drunk. Why? Because Protestants love coming up with new stuff, new ideas about God, new thoughts about God, and that's dangerous. But Revelation, God's word, never changes. But our theology, our doctrine, our interpretation will undergo change. And that's why we're doing this series. And that's why we need to go up to the sheer cliffs of God, right up to the edge, and look over the vastness of who he is. It's why we're doing this series on God's attributes. Because the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. And by the way, I should say, reading the Bible is not boring. Reading the Bible is thrilling and exciting. You hope you get my point. We want to think rightly about God. We want to say the right things about what God has said. And that means we're going to need the Holy Spirit, right? We're going to need the Holy Spirit to help us. We're going to have to say a lot during this series, help me, Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in order to think rightly about God. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to see God in all his glory. But we don't want to just stop there. We also want to rejoice and delight in all that we discover about God. As Jonathan Edwards said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, 
God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate. That's revelation. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory. And that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies, and he's talking about preaching, he's talking about teachings, he's talking about us doing theology and doctrine. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. What he's saying is it's not enough for us to have good theology. It's not enough for us to think correctly and say the right things about what God has said. He said we only give God half the glory then. Edwards is saying we have to have the right understanding of God, but then we need to learn to rejoice or to delight in it. Because how many seminaries are filled with professors who have PhDs in systematic theology and they could explain all the attributes of God to you but it doesn't thrill their heart. We don't want to just think rightly about God. We want to delight in what we discover. That's what glorifies God. When we receive what he communicates to us, both with our mind and with our heart. It's not enough to think rightly about God. We must also rejoice in delight in what we discover about him. And the main way that God communicated his glory with us is through the incarnation. As John tells us, and the word, that's revelation, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word made flesh. Jesus Christ is the communication from God. He is the revelation of God in the flesh. And John the Baptist, you know what? Think about this week. John the Baptist had the best theology of the incarnation because what did he say to the revelation of God in Christ in the flesh? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was the revelation of God in human flesh and John did theology in that moment and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the pinnacle of theology. It's the summit of what we say about God. Jesus is the revelation of God, the Word made flesh, and John the Baptist responds with theology. Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And that is why God's thoughts and God's ways are above us. Because he forgives sinners. Because he takes away our sins. I didn't read it on purpose earlier at the beginning of the sermon, but what is the context when Isaiah says that God's thoughts are higher and his ways are higher? The context is that he's merciful and that he pardons sinners. Listen to what Isaiah says before he says God's ways are higher. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him 
and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The table before us today is part of God's higher thoughts and ways. He welcomes sinners here. He has compassion on sinners. He abundantly pardons sinners. And he gave us something very simple, a meal, the bread and the cup, to remind us that he may be found, to remind us that he is near, to remind us that he has compassion on us and that he abundantly pardons all of our sins. So look at the table today and do theology and do doctrine and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the revelation of God, the Word made flesh. Thank you for what you have done through your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. You have made the way possible for people like us to come into your presence, to be justified and declared righteous and to be adopted into your family. We can enjoy God now because of what you have done, Jesus. And we want to enjoy you today. We ask you to forgive us of our sins because they are so many. Jesus, every single one of us here have thought wicked thoughts these, this week. We've said wicked things. We've done wicked things. And we have had wicked motives driving everything that we are thinking, saying, and doing. And we ask you to be merciful, as Isaiah says, to have compassion on us and to pardon our sins. So we repent and we turn back to you and say, you're our joy. Help us to delight and to rejoice in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name.